Before God, I know the Holy Spirit brings people into ministry, um, but really, if it wasn't for Les, uh, Les is the one who invited me one year at camp to come to Fairview and just volunteer and teach Bible studies to the youth. And I was pleased for that opportunity. And and through that, very organically, he worked with me and helped me and provided more and more opportunities. And that one Wednesday night Bible study turned into working with the youth. That turned into a summer job, then a part-time job, then a full-time job. And Les just really worked. And I I can say this is probably the highest praise you you can give someone, is that after all these years, um, being away from Les, I still consider Les my pastor a real pastor, genuine pastor's heart, and I'm looking forward to hearing what God will teach us through him this morning. I appreciate Steve's warm comments. I was going to kind of say after he started getting going that I guess he blames everything on me for why he is what he is, but I've enjoyed Steve's ministry and friendship for a number of years, and he's in turn had, I think, great positive influence on my children as he also lived in our home for a while and continues to to be part of our family as well. One of the uh, things that was happening when I was considering what I would speak on here, you see, some of you are are called uh, to come and ask to speak at Bunyan Conference. I was commanded. Um, I, apparently, the host of the church needs to preach once in a while, and John had called me, and rather than ask me, as he has in the past, to speak at Bunyan, and I said, no thanks, I'll be busy taking out the garbage or something, he just said, uh, so you're speaking this year, what's your topic? So the only question is, what I was going to speak on? And as I began to think through that and considered how significant New Covenant theology as a movement has been coming along over the years, the last 20, 25 years, 30 years, depends on who you talk to, and how even today, through books, as I see in the book table, through a number of the blogs that are going, and certainly conferences, not unlike what we're doing here this morning, the impact of New Covenant theology and thinking along these lines is really starting to pick up speed. Added to that, as the older generation of our speakers move on, we have so many younger and I think quite bright students of the scriptures who are beginning to understand the scriptures in light of the New Covenant and how significant that is. Uh, things are really picking up steam, and I'm really pleased to see that taking place because it, it means that the future is very, very bright. And most comments, again, how, uh, you know, there's so much out there now, but we still, I think, uh, burn brightly as a light of di- points of discussion and places to be. And one of the grand purposes of the John Bunyan Conference is always to be a, a place of rest, reflection, a discussion, debate, and fellowship on these crucial areas. And so we have our brothers coming from South Carolina, from Connecticut, from Michigan, and even around these environments here. Why? To honor and worship God as we start to listen to authors, read their books, and think through these things, some things that I would have never thought of if I hadn't sat here and somebody said something. I think, hmm, that's interesting. Let's talk about it. And so we want to continue to do that. And so as I thought of all of that, I began to think that really what I'd like to consider for a few minutes this morning is the practical implications of New Covenant theology. Now, there are some implications that are readily there. If you start to espouse things of New Covenant theology, you tend to get lumped into a certain group of friends and maybe castigated for your lack of understanding of the law and so on and so on. But I'm thinking more in light of the New Covenant itself 
How does that impact our daily lives? How do we take that which we study and bring it down to real life? Because I'm fairly confident that no one who has come to this conference this year or those in the past are not merely concerned with uh, intellectual stimulation or the advancement of our brains in gathering information, but that this information and the stimulation begins to work its way into our daily lives personally, that we are transformed more and more into the image of the Son, and that our ministries begin to reflect a clear understanding of this new covenant. Because the more I listen to these things and read them, the more I'm convinced that until we start to read the New Testament and read the Old Testament and look at pastoral ministry and life in general as a Christian through the lenses of the New Covenant, we are missing so much. Because now when we begin to understand the New Covenant itself as given by our Lord Jesus, is it begins to speak to how we actually live. Now having said that, I realize that that doesn't mean that we haven't talked about practical application. Uh, at every step of the way, the speakers here this week have spoke about application and how these things impact us. Fred preaching last night from Hebrews and, and mentioning a text that I might mention here as well in what Christ has accomplished for us and our relationship to him, our great high priest. That is readily applicable to the difficulties and frustrations and struggles we have as Christians. And certainly Steve in his, uh, you know, speaking on the Sermon on the Mount and the dealing with sin and how we overcome these things. Man, is that ever applicable to our lives? No question. So we have been doing that. But what I want to do here is guard against being overly academic and think about application. And also, as a sidelight, chatting with one of the fellows this week, guard against being over-militant. Because there is also a danger that we get in our little closed groups here and we become very militant and take on the approach that happens sometimes in sovereign grace circles, that it's us against them. And we have to sort of shore up the foundations here and get ready with our ammunition because somebody's going to disagree with us. But rather to kind of, you know, you know, sort of drop our guard a little bit, if you will, and be willing to have interaction and discourse on these things for the furthering of the kingdom and the glory of the king. And ultimately, that needs to be our goal. So how do we approach this subject this morning? Well, as I ran through this and my thoughts became more rambling as I went through them, uh, I hit upon one thought, at least, that was helpful. When we talk about the practical nature or the practicality of the New Covenant, I started thinking about the Old Covenant and the practicality of the Old Covenant. In other words, it would be hard to argue that the stipulations under the Old Covenant were somehow impractical. After all, by the nature of how God had given them to the people of Israel, they're practical. They're part of the practice of their lives. It was very clear as to what was expected of the people of Israel, wasn't it? While the list of laws and regulations was long, maybe tedious, and indeed difficult to actually perform, it certainly wasn't ambiguous. It was clear. Do this and you live. Don't do this and you die. It gave wonderful instructions on how to raise your cattle and how to uh, raise crops, how to care for your men servants, your maid servants, and all of those things were there. So in one sense, it was really easy in one sense. How do we honor God? How do we live a life that's pleasing to God? Well, here it is. Here's the law. Follow the law. Do these things. Oh, yes, there's a, a faith element. Abraham came much before that. 
But in terms of the context of the requirements for the people of Israel, it was very practical. All they had to do was look at the list. Here's the list. Do this. Don't do this. Follow this. And you could almost check those things off and say, at some level, we're doing exactly what God requires of his people. And in a real sense, at least for my naivete as I grew to understand these things, is that was something of a, a compelling notion of covenantal theology and adhering to the moral law, as is so often the term used around. In other words, how do we serve God? How do we please him? How do we come to some uh, way in which that we can honor God who has saved us? Well, what do we do? We follow the Ten Commandments. And there's something appealing to that. For a number of years, I pastored in upstate New York, uh, a GARB church, and Pastor John had come up a number of years and spoke there, and they didn't stone either of us, and they've actually appreciated having us there. But one of the things that I began to realize with the association of churches that were there was that the pastors wanted to make everything nice and neat for the people. And so we have the Ten Commandments, and we have our own list that we pile on top of that. So if the people have an issue and a trouble with that, just point them to the list. And if it's not on the Ten Commandments, well, we've got some more for you. And we will orient your lives under a very legal system so that you will please God in their mind, or at the very least, you'll conform to the standards that we have set as a church. And again, as I worked through that and, and not seeing that anywhere in the scriptures, began to realize that there's a, re, a significant problem with that. But even today, of course, there are those who look at that system of thinking in whatever fashion they want and continue to push that forward. Here's the way in which you can practically live as a Christian. Uh, I know for a fact there's one very prominent Presbyterian church in Florida by a very prominent, written, and very godly pastor down there. And up until at least I checked a couple of years ago, that every Sunday morning, in addition to the sermon, there is at least a 10 to 15 minute exposition of one of the Ten Commandments every week. Now, that doesn't tell you that they adhere to the Ten Commandments. I don't know what they're doing. It's showing their, their cards, if you will. Further to that, it, it really hit me between the eyes. In Florida, again, we were, I was attending the, uh, a number of years ago the Ligonier uh, National Conference, 5,000 people there, and in many ways it was wonderful. Uh, but R.C. Sproul Jr. had a booth amongst the many of them. And this was coming not too many months. It was the spring, I think, after the uh, copy or the issue of Table Talk uh, that kind of lambasted uh, Fred and John and this whole antinomian movement called New Covenant Theology. And so, again, I'm still learning. And I saw R.C. Jr. there at his table, and I began to ask about these things. And it struck me right away that he had mentioned he hadn't read any of these guys in the first place. So that sort of showed me, well, how interested can you be? But I mentioned his name because it was significant in the next thing that was said. When we interacted, and, and uh, in terms of the covenant and the Ten Commandments and antinomianism, I mentioned to him, because he, he constantly was saying, as others do, if you break the law at one point, you've broken the whole thing. You've got to take the whole thing together. And so I said, well, so you trim your beard a certain way because the law tells you that. And he said, absolutely. At that point, I didn't know what to say. I really didn't know what to say. He wins the argument. And so, again, it continued to dawn on me that there's a whole segment of society that really sees that the fundamental, if not the only way in which we can truly honor our holy God, 
is to live up to the standard he has given us in the Ten Commandments. The curious thing, of course, is that I think the Scriptures teach us that not only is that impossible for us to do, that was never the intent in the first place by these things. Yet it continues to be put forward as the standard. So if a young Christian wants to know, well, how do I please Jesus? Well, here's the Ten Commandments. Just live by these. And so we give them a standard they can fulfill and aren't supposed to anyway, as far as I understand the New Testament Scriptures. Now that poses a further problem. If not this, then what? And that was a question that I worked through. In other words, what's the motivation? What gives us the drive to do this? And that was in 1993, prior to many of these things, at my first John Bunyan conference out here in Cowan when it was there, and listening to these guys speak, and I recall very vividly at one point, one of the questions that I had in the little circle of discussion, I say, well, what's the motivation? How do we encourage Christians uh, to be sanctified, to be holy, to pursue these things? And, and Fred was one of the guys in the discussion, whether he made the, the comment or someone else was, uh, basically it came down to this whole issue of Christ himself. We point them to Jesus and the law of Christ, or as we call it, the law of love. Here it is. Now, again, I recognize as we should, that it's not nice and neat and tidy as having a list. Grace living is messy living. It's living in the ugliness of sin and calling people to Jesus Christ, saying, here is the way, and by grace we will serve him. You know, we have to remember, we're saved by grace and we're sanctified by the same grace. And so here it is, the law of... And so you have a text like John 13, 34, when Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, in one sense, of course, it wasn't new in terms of loving others. But it was new in the sense of what Jesus came to do and what was the foundation for us in order to do that love. It's brand new. Something has changed. And so that's what I want to think of here, that there are some practical features of New Covenant theology that we need to understand. If understood and applied correctly, I believe New Covenant theology will do several things for the Christian, both in the pew and the pastor as he ministers to his people. We are not trying to impose a system. We're not trying to say here, in disregard to dispensationalism and covenant theology, here's a new theology and a system to use as a template by which you can read the scriptures. No, no, absolutely not. But we are hopefully encouraging an understanding of the scriptures that are seen through the new covenant and that everything is read in light of that, past, present, and future. And if we can do that, then we are starting to see wonderful practical applications. We could start, of course, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, as we have thought this week as well, where here in prophetic fashion, something is coming that's greater, it's new, it's different, it's not the old one. And you have expanded wonderfully in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus himself, as he radically lives a life and teaches something that literally was turning everything upside down. And so you have these interactions. Even when you come, of course, to the Last Supper, when Jesus with his disciples, who are still kind of foggy about a number of these things, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What's that all about? Paul obviously understood some of that because in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's dealing with a myriad of church issues with the people of Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, 
and this one specifically about the fellowship feast and the table of communion and so on, he reiterates there about this cup of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. Something new has come, and so it seems to me then that we have to see it as the early church did, indeed the apostles themselves, as that this was radically different. In other words, as I work through this in my own heart and mind is, it seems to become obvious to me at least, that the Apostle Paul and Peter and all these guys, James, were teaching and preaching with an understanding of the new covenant and what it had done. I look at the early church, and particularly the apostles, and you think of them kind of in their training school of theology, the Jesus School of Theology. And their first three years, you know, freshman, sophomore, and junior years, were right along with the Master. Their graduate year, their senior year, rather, was really after Jesus had died, was buried, was raised again, ascended unto heaven. But in that whole process of teaching and learning, you know the progression. They're somewhat freshmen in all of this. And they were at a disadvantage in one sense because it was all new. They were either simple fishermen or religious guys who had been steeped in Judaism, and all this was brand new. But they were also very advantaged in the sense that they learned it from the master himself. They got it firsthand from the one who would bring through him his blood, the new covenant, to his people. And so you pick on that, of course, with Paul himself. While he wasn't under the direct tutelage of Jesus Christ in his ministry, certainly was brought to bear directly from the Lord, his ministry, and then himself expounding upon these things and recognizing as a teacher of the gospel himself. That is from the New Covenant. If you look at Galatians chapter 1, for instance, and again, we've mentioned the book of Galatians. You don't have to go there, but just notice again as we understand Galatians. Here's Paul the Apostle, who is this great preacher and missionary in the first century. And in Galatians, you know, it strikes me as well. He says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's already astonished that so quickly they're turning away from this. Now, we understand some of the components as to why and what influences were there. But at the heart of his ministry here is the concern for the gospel, as was originated in Jesus Christ, the bearer of the new covenant, who has brought this to bear. He's changed everything, and that's the focal point of our ministry. And so Paul himself, uh, and we'll look at other texts from him as well, gives us some indication as to how practical the understanding of the New Covenant becomes. Because it's the very, as they said, the warp and woof of our ministry. It's all there. And so here then, as we try and model these things in our own lives, have some thoughts. What I'd like to do just again for the rest of our time here is I've jotted down some sort of bullet points. In what areas of our ministry and personal life then does an understanding of the New Covenant begin to take precedence and, and begin to have influence in these lives. The first point here I would make in our preaching. Uh, it, it's so wonderful to be here for an intense two and a half days and hear the variety of preachers and their styles all conveying the same truth of the gospel, undergirded by these things. The focal point of and the biblical key to preaching is Jesus Christ. And so can we not... Can we actually preach Jesus Christ without understanding what he came to do and what he actually changed in all this? We must see him in that light. We need to understand the covenant that he brought to bear if we're going to preach rightly. 
Uh, both Fred and Steve, and maybe others have mentioned this week, of course, the book of Hebrews. When you get right into the heart of preaching Hebrews, for instance, how do you understand Hebrews without an understanding of the New Covenant? From the Sabbath rest to the great high priest to faith in, in, in later on in Hebrews. Again, you look at it saying, how do you preach this without some understanding of the New Covenant? But see, that's whole, all part of what we're talking about here is how these things need to be at the foundation of where we're going with this. And again, the writer of Hebrews, as well as Paul, will highlight these things. How can we possibly preach Jesus correctly if we don't see him in his new covenant radiance? How do we rightly present him as the great high priest if we do not sense that in, in and through him something has radically and permanently changed? And that's the new covenant. Is he merely a really good priest in a line of other good priests, or is indeed he the great, even the greatest high priest, the inaugurator of the new covenant? Well, we know the answer to that. He is. And so I'm, again, thinking, how do you preach through that book of the Bible without grappling with it, at the very least, and understanding something of the covenant in which he is brought to bear? Again, this is how Paul, uh, I think, preaches. If you look at texts like 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 1 to 4, when Paul the Apostle begins to declare, you know, they didn't come with power and strength, but in the power of the gospel, his own power, not his own power, but the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of what? The Spirit and of power. And so here's the Apostle Paul, struck by Christ himself, brought to salvation, and this great preacher of the gospel, what is it that's undergirding his preacher? Preaching, an understanding of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, and what he brought to bear. Everything's changed now. And again, Paul, in his own history, would be an expert to see how things have changed because he was so steeped in his Judaism and in what he thought was most pleasing to God. Isn't that interesting with Paul? That he really thought he was honoring God by persecuting Christians. He thought he was doing the right thing. And it was only and could only be a powerful work of the Holy Spirit by God to change that thinking. And now that his thinking and his heart has been changed, he can't but speak Jesus Christ every time because something has radically changed. This is not merely Jesus kind of renewing some of the wonderful things in the old. Paul knew the old. It says, you know, this is so far beyond that. It's something different. It's something new. And so the preaching of the word of God, I believe, will be far more effective for us if, you know, coursing through it is some understanding of the new covenant in this level. Again, Ephesians 2, 14 to 18, where Paul preaches himself. You can jot that down. We won't go there for now. But you look at the way Paul preached, not just his calling to preach, but the manner in which he preaches the gospel. He, he never strays from the centrality of the cross in his preaching. It's always there. Why would he do that? Because he knew. That's, that, that's the only place to take anyone. And you see, if, if you don't really see this covenant as being new, to me it, it somehow blunts the preaching of the gospel. If you're trying to hold on to some vestiges of, you know, being sanctified by the law and using all these things in the Decalogue and the, you know, again, the moral law of God enduring and so on, that just doesn't seem to have the impact that it does when you begin to realize just how much Jesus has changed in the New Covenant. Now, there's a side note here, 
uh, I think it's important that we need to present New Covenant theology, as we've discussed it here, always in its biblical framework. There's no need when we preach to impose extra biblical presuppositions or personal theological preferences in order for people to understand what it's saying. We say, here's the scriptures. Look at what God's word says. Let those preach. It's not that we don't like these books. I love books, and they're so helpful when they you know, synthesize some of these things. But it's in similar fashion to how I think we should teach the doctrines of grace. Every Sunday, uh, I preach, I don't expound the five points of Calvinism. But hopefully some understanding of the truth of sovereign grace permeates my preaching. And so what do we do when we want people to understand the doctrines of grace? We might like them to read John Calvin and, and Jonathan Edwards and others, but we don't point them there, do we? We point them to the text of Scripture, saying, read this verse for me. Tell me what you think that means. Read this verse. Tell me what you... The Scriptures do that. And I believe so it should be with New Covenant theology. That we, we don't point them when they have questions about this to, you know, Fred Zaspel or John Riesinger. We point them to the Scriptures. We take them to Hebrews. We take them to Galatians. Say, okay, what is the biblical writer saying? And they say, well, well, you know, you, you remember this. No, no, no. What is the text saying here? And everything else, books and catalogs and articles and discussions and tapes, become the secondary, if you will, material that we bring in to help us understand the scriptures after we've wrestled with what the text says. And because what happens here, like happens to many people when they come to understand the doctrines of grace, all of a sudden they see it everywhere. And they can't get away from it. You know, maybe that was your experience when you came to understand the doctrine of election or predestination. All of a sudden, it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And isn't that similar to the New Covenant? When you begin to see it there, there it is again. There, and you go back to the old, there it is. It's all over the place. And suddenly it strikes you, at least it strikes me, is that this wasn't some afterthought that God had inserted later on. This is exactly what he purposed and planned before time began. And when you get a hold of that, all of a sudden the scriptures themselves don't take on new meaning. I'm not sure how to put it, but there's an, a, a life to them that was somehow missing. And now all the pieces start to connect. At least it did for me. And so I think as a sidelight for our preaching, it needs to take that level. Let the scriptures preach and teach these things. Go to the text. And don't just start throwing books into people. Use the books. But, because the Bible teaches it. And see, that's the, cha- that's the problem when you start to try and teach some of these other systems. These other theological systems don't work unless you have their grid over the scriptures. You can't just say, here, read the Bible, all right, and it teaches this theological system. You've got to insert these other things to make it fit. Uh, as far as I can see, with New Covenant theology, you don't need that. Even though it doesn't answer all the questions as we've tried to this week, the scriptures will teach us. There it is. So our preaching needs to do that. Not only preaching, how is it practically oriented around our pastoral ministry? For those of us who are pastors. Uh, again, that's a subject that's dear to my heart because so much of our time as pastors encompasses people. As many have said before, the job would be a lot easier if it wasn't for people. But, of course, therein is the rub, isn't it? So, so much of our work is people and the concerns for their hearts and so on. Again, just as I think the, the doctrines of sovereign grace are so wonderful to help our pastoral ministry, so too, I believe, New Covenant theology comes along and helps us as well. We have to ask the question, how will an understanding of the New Covenant affect the way I pastor God's people? 
In one sense, of course, it will undergird our entire ministry, pastoral or otherwise, but it also should have direct application to how we care for the souls of the sheep in our midst, as we also call the ghost of repentance and faith. The New Covenant understanding will help us in terms of how we care for the sheep and minister to their hearts, and also how we call the lost to salvation. One note along these lines, for instance, if you're looking for a text, or at least I do, 1 Peter chapter 5, as Peter is talking about the elders there, to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, and when the the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. One of the crucial teaching ministries of Peter and Paul was pastoral ministry. And when Paul sets Titus afoot to work on the island of Crete, he says, establish elders in the church. To what end? Well, to root out error and to deal with these things, to pastor the sheep, build the churches, minister to people. And so our pastoral ministry, I think if I understand even Peter as he gives the exhortation here, is that everything that we do in pastoral ministry is based upon what Christ has accomplished on the cross, and we understand what Christ has accomplished on the cross as he introduces the new covenant, because that's the whole foundation. And so now my pastoral ministry, when someone comes into my office and needs some help, what kind of help can I give them? They're struggling through these things. I don't give them a list of things. Do this and call me in the morning. Well, there may be some instructions and homework that would help them in whatever particular problem that they're facing. But what do I do? I take them to the cross. I take them to Christ. I say, here, if you're a Christian, is what Christ has done for you. He's paid for all of your sins. You're struggling in this area. The Bible calls you to repent. And hold to the one who loves you. And we counsel them in this way. Why? Because Christ came and he shed his blood. He's done something for us that could not be done under the old. And now we have, not just in outward form and service, but the inward work of the Holy Spirit, in such a manner as they come to Jesus, who is your Lord and Savior, find rest in him. And then together, working through these dilemmas. You know, I'm, I'd be the first to admit as a pastor that if nobody ever came into my office looking for counseling, I'd be really happy. It takes up time, energy, and I have no idea what to tell them. And it's true. And that's why I'm so grateful as the scriptures are unfolded in this manner. Because I can say to them, look, I'm really not sure how we might take care of the situation you have. We'll work at that. But what I do know is there's a Savior. Here is Jesus. And look at what he's done in the scriptures. For his glory in your life. And so as a Christian, even though you've got all this in your life, you have everything you need in Christ to deal with that. So let's, as Steve said, do it. Let's get to work. Man, that is really helpful. No longer do I think I have to be the doctor with the prescription to cure, cure everything. But I come along as a brother or sister in the Lord, whoever is with me, and saying, let's deal with this together by God's grace. And so the new covenant 
understanding has significant impact in the way that we deal with our counseling situations. Further to that, and one that's more on an even individual level, what about personal holiness? And this is perhaps one of the bigger ones to deal with, personal holiness. And Steve had, had dealt with some of these things in the Sermon on the Mount and, and how we get to doing these things. But again, and this is huge for me, is an understanding of the New Covenant really gives fullness to an understanding of personal holiness. Again, we still come up with a question, well, but what motivates me? And we've talked about that and come back to those things as well. And that's the point. Where does the obedience come from? What's the motivation to do these things? Again, I think it was Blake had mentioned Romans 6 earlier in the week. You know, we've died to sin. Something has taken place in us, accomplished in time past, and our relationship to sin now is different. And so we can relate to it in a way that we couldn't relate to it before. So that initially in terms of personal holiness is very important. We're not starting from nothing. We're starting from something that has happened in us. We're dead to sin. Yes, the vestiges are there. We struggle, and that's Paul's point as well. But that's done. So we relate to it differently. But then how do, that gives us at least a hint to dealing with personal obedience. But where from there? Again, we come back to Christ. This week or two weeks ago, whenever I got a copy of Fred's little book now, uh, which were two lectures in the 2008 John Bunyan Conference, New Covenant, New Covenant Theology, that you, if you haven't bought it, you will buy it after the service today. It was wonderful to read again. I said to Fred, listening to lectures, I enjoy them, but it's really hard sometimes to focus on everything for me, and coming out in printed form was very helpful for me. But that's the very thing, and I'm quoting Fred here at this point. In terms of this whole issue, Fred says, God's law has been written on our hearts, and obedience stems from the supernatural workings of the Spirit of God within us. The law still informs our conscience. But it no longer rules in it with its former threatening. Both our initial renewal and our continued transformation are a work undertaken for us by, uh, and by, let me back up, undertaken for us and in us by God's Spirit. And I think that's the, the real key in one sense to understanding the personal holiness and sanctification. It is transformational in us. It is moving us. The initial inauguration of these things in our lives, and the continued transformation is that which is undertaken for us and in us by God's Spirit. It is something outside of us. It's foreign to us because it's not something we generate, but it's in us because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And there's a beauty of it. For me, is that it's something that I have no capacity to do, but the capacity is given to me because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me. And so now, not only in a counseling situation, but I can say to them and to myself, is I don't need anything outside of this. I have all that I need here for personal holiness because the Spirit dwells within me. And therein is the motivation. We cry to the Spirit. We cry to God, oh, Lord, work in me. Thank you for your grace. Give me a greater desire. Work in me. And then our love for him, our desire for him, our passion for him, and our recognition of what he has done for us will be a great encouragement. When I can understand in my life that Romans 8, verse 1, actually means what it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then I can understand if that is really true, then it changes my whole perspective of sanctification. Amen. Because nothing's held against me. Amen. And every time Satan stands up and says, wait a minute, Clemens, how can Christ love you? In one sense, I say, yeah, you're right, Satan. But no, he said right here, there is no condemnation, none. Past, present, it's gone. In Christ Jesus. 
And so the new covenant radically changes how we look at personal holiness. No longer do we have this, this sort of model, this list, this, um, as Jerry Bridges coins it, this uh, performance treadmill where we just kind of work harder at it all the time and just do more work, do more good things, do more Bible reading, do more study, listen to more lectures, and somehow we'll get better and better. But if you've tried that, of course, at the end of the day, you feel even worse because you haven't followed through the things you thought you should be doing, and you just keep descending further and further into this abyss of depression and frustration, which just ratchets up the whole problem. But in one sense, I don't want to be incorrect here, that's the very purpose of the law out there, to show us how futile any work is in terms of salvation and in terms of sanctification. It is all of grace. Now, again, we get misunderstood. There's lots of duties for us to perform as Christians. There are the commands of Christ to follow. Absolutely, they're all there. But the structure for me that's so important is what are they based upon? This law system that says do this or you're in big trouble, which is how we sometimes do our devotions in the morning. If you don't do that, man, you're going to have a lousy day. Or is it still all taken up in who, what, who Christ is and what he has done? Changes the game significantly. You talk about change in the playing field and the rules. That's what Christ does. And this is one of the things that frustrates me with a number of my brothers and friends who want to continue to talk about this old covenant, this covenantal theology, in such a way that the, the law, the moral law, as if there's somehow any immoral law there, that continues on in perpetuity for us today. All you're doing, in my understanding, is, is frustrating Christians more and more. You're just shackling to them to something that Christ set them free from. Hmm, and isn't that what Paul says in Galatians? You, it is for freedom you've been set free. Why would you go back and put on the shackles that held you down? You're right, Paul. But we keep doing it. And part of the reason, I think, maybe the significant reason is we have not understood what Christ has actually accomplished. We have not understood the new covenant. But when we start to understand it, it's, it's frightening. And it's kind of like, uh, can I really go there? And yes, you can. That's why some of our brothers who we think are New Covenant don't want to say so because they're afraid, can I go there? And you step. But when you take that step, we have what we have here. Great fellowship and understanding of what Christ is doing for his kingdom as well. There are a number of texts. Uh, Galatians 1, of course, I mentioned it. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, in that freedom. If, if we're free, let's stand as free men and do that for the glory of God. You can also think through, of course, James in his words, and Steve had mentioned these as well, uh, be doers of the word, not hearers only. We have to be doing. But interestingly, in, uh, later on in James, James chapter 2, verse 8, uh, James also says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So even James, who's always the works guy, points out the royal law of love. And I think we see that in terms of the new covenant, the law of love, the law of Christ is there. That's what gives foundation to being doers of the word. It's not just the admonition, you've got to do more, you've got to do more. It's based upon the law of Christ, what he has done for us. And so that's the foundation, I think, for some of that. Uh, further to that, we could talk about our prayer lives. How does the new covenant influence us practically in our prayer lives? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Again, a text that Fred uh, helped us through last evening or mentioned it there. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help, help in time of need. Um, there are very few times I go to do hospital visitation that I don't take that verse with me. Because in the midst of a person's struggle, dying or whatever, I can remind them that we have a great high priest to whom we can go with everything. Indeed, the scriptures, tell us why, the scriptures remind us, why aren't you coming? What's the matter with you? It's here. It's open. Come. Every need you have, every desire is met here. Come to the throne of grace. And in a personal sense, in a personal prayer life, again, here it is. What is Christ? He's opened the way. We, we talk wonderfully, and images, of course, of the, the, the curtain that was torn in two, and the images there. Now we have full access. I think some people talk about that and don't really understand what actually full access they actually have. Full, unbridled access to the presence of God. Nothing hidden. We are there. We can come to him in that way. So again, when we understand what Christ has accomplished and something of this new covenant structure of the scriptures, then I can come boldly, yet respectfully and humbly, but boldly into the throne room, cry out to God, have mercy on me. Lord, here's my issue. Deal with it. Struggle with it. Come into his presence. Spend time in prayer simply because we know we can. There is nothing to hold us back except ourselves. Christ says, come on in. Bring it all. And we'll deal with this. You couldn't do that if the new covenant had not come. You're stuck. You've got to go through somebody else in a certain way and form. We don't have that anymore. And that should excite us in terms of our prayer lives. And it should certainly spur us on to greater prayer, I believe. In that text in Hebrews, well, I will go there. We'll move on. Worship. Worship is another area I think we need to maybe think through in terms of our understanding of the new covenant. Because, again, we have a lot of discussion in these days about worship. What is it? Is it that one-day-a-week one thing we do, or is it all of life? And, of course, we understand uh, certainly the biblical implications of worship to a certain degree, and hopefully we don't fall prey to some of the modern tendencies on these things. But, again, notice how worship changes in terms of the new covenant. Here you have in the New Testament, Jesus has this meeting with the woman at the well, and they have this debate over worship. And she is still thinking in old times, well, you worship on a hill, you worship on that hill, we worship here. And what does Jesus say? A day is coming when we will not worship on this hill or that hill, but we will worship in what? Spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Is that not radical? Is not what Jesus is saying there transformational? It's different. That wasn't the way it was before. We're not going to worship how we did in the past. Because she's still working on that model, even as a Samaritan. Well, you guys, you Jews worship there, we worship here. Jesus, forget all that. The time is coming. In fact, it's already here where you will, worshipers of God will worship in spirit and truth. I mean, that's radical. And so when Jesus brings that to bear, then you have all sorts of New Testament texts that talk about worship that take on radically different connotations than many people give them. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Okay, so now it's not just an act I do sort of with my voice to God, but now it's my whole life. It's something more to my life. How do I do that? 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to what? To worship. The whole model of worship has changed from the Old Testament. The same God is worshipped. But the way in which we bring it to him is far different. Why? Because of the New Covenant. It's changed everything. And so now we realize that the whole issue of worship, my worship, becomes so much more, in one sense, personal and individual because I come to God in any sense, at any place, and my whole life is, is an extension of worship to him. And also, I think, helpfully adjusts our corporate worship because we are a body. And now our worship as a body, and this is why I belabor with our people here, is we're corporately coming together to sing praises. That's part of our worship. But when we go on a hayride and sing courses around the campfire afterwards, we are worshiping. We're worshiping on the hayride when we're throwing corn cobs at each other and so on. We are in worship of our God. We're on this together. Why? Because the new covenant has come. Try and picture New Testament, new covenant worship under the old covenant. It doesn't fit. It's not supposed to. Everything before was looking towards that which would come. It served its purpose. The law was there. The good and perfect law of God. It serves its purpose. But now the new has come. And so now worship has changed in terms of the form and how we do these things. And now with, with great joy and delight, we can bring our praises to God in this way. And so we need to think of these things in terms of our worship and the focus of these things. Finally, uh, at least another category, there are more. Uh, we could look at evangelism and mission. Evangelism. How does New Covenant affect our evangelism? Well, I think it gives us the very foundation of why we should evangelize. The Matthew 28 text, the Great Commission, uh, is so steeped in, in the fact that Jesus has brought in this New Covenant and what he's done gives the impetus for us to be disciple-makers, is the term that uh, Blake had used earlier. We are disciple-makers. We are taking this to the world because of what Christ has done. Go and make disciples. Why? Because I've come. The new covenant is here. A new era has been brought in. And so now we can be the greatest evangelists because Christ has chosen to accomplish these things through us for his glory. Same in terms of mission. appreciate chatting with, with Steve Best and Rod Connor with TET and what they're doing there. Uh, and again, a mission that's, that's really undergirded because of their understanding of new covenant theology. And rather than make us hide here and just kind of talk about it, it gives us great delight and desire to go and take this to others, formulated on these things. And on and on it goes. It was interesting, uh, this past uh, February, end of February, early March, Steve and I and my father and the team uh, went over to Cape Town, South Africa, and did three weeks of ministry over there, teaching and training and conferences and so on. There are four pastors in one of the largest shanty towns uh, in South Africa. It's called Kailicha. There's about a million people living in these shacks. And these four guys come to know the doctrines of grace. They've started a little group called Sound, uh, All of Grace and want to plant churches who are established among the doctrines of grace in the midst of all the... Every kind of kook group comes into Africa and there's mysticism and ultra-Pentecostalism and they want to plant solid churches who understand the doctrines of grace. Now, they haven't quite come as far to understand New Covenant theology. We're working on them. One of the great things was I gratefully was able to take with me, uh, donated by New Covenant theology or New Covenant uh, Media and Sound of Grace, where 
three full boxes of books of John's material, and we took them over there and got to distribute these, and so they've got some good material in their hands. But seeing there, how does this new covenant affect the way you do missions? We do things around the world. It changes everything. Not only what Christ has done, but he's opened up the way here, and we need to be, I think, at the very edge of mission in around the world because of this very thing, the covenant itself, the new covenant, and Christ has done these things for us that we might take them to the world. Titus would be an example I would use in terms of a text of Scripture in Titus 2. Uh, Titus says, for the grace of, or Paul says to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here are texts that if we read them with New Covenant lenses give great excitement about doing mission, about doing evangelism, about doing all the Christian life. Now there are other categories that we could certainly draw on to discuss these things and many other texts. I think there are at least three concluding thoughts I would give in terms of, in light of what we've thought about this morning. First, I would suggest that we spend more intentional time in the scriptures, viewing them with new covenant lenses in order that we may truly understand the purpose of God. We need to be intentional looking at the scriptures and saying, how do I understand this from a new covenant perspective? What does this text say? And, and for me, as I started to read some of these texts through that, I'm thinking, how is Paul reading, you know, well, reading them? How is he giving them? How is Peter giving these texts? What are they saying about it? How are they reading the Old Testament with these lenses of the new covenant that's come? And so I, need, I, I think, at least personally, we need to be more intentional in that and not just gloss over texts, but saying, how does this new covenant Christ has brought to bear influence this text of Scripture? And then how does it influence the way I interpret it and take it to the world and others and so on? Second, we need to fo- continue fostering discussion as well as writing on New Covenant theology and its relationship with everyday life so that the church might be brought into even greater conformity with the Savior. Uh, again, most of the books we're reading have application, but we need to keep pushing that, that everything we're doing at an academic level is brought down to bear on a grassroots level so that our lives are changed and we have opportunities to tell people, this is what the Bible teaches. Here it is. And do it in a very pastoral, uh, practical level that we can put to bear here. And again, that's one of the great features of this conference. But finally, and this is most, most important, we must press hard in all of these discussions and studies and conferences to remember that the goal behind it all is God's goal himself, and that is the glory of his holy name. The goal and purpose in this really, is not that we have a better way to understand the scriptures. Not that we've now got the key to understand all these categories, but that in so doing, God's name will be glorified. Our passion for him must be the whole focal point. That in learning these things here, now myself as a 21st century Christian, as a believer here, I can go into the world with great confidence, joy, and delight because my Savior Jesus is coming again. My Lord and Savior, who saved me, is coming to take me home. And boy, I want to do all that I can to honor his name. That's our purpose. That's our goal. And again, we need to keep praying that that would be done in these circles as we rejoiced here and going back to our churches. I don't know where some of you worship and fellowship. Some of you have great fellowship ongoing in some of these things. Some of you may be going back into some of the fire. But we have spent two and a half days 
looking and wrestling with scripture in such a manner that we might be changed. I trust that through this conference we've accomplished some of that. May God be glorified as we've done so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, uh, you, I trust, have stirred our hearts to this grand theme, the theme of the glory of our King. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for saving us. And thank you, Lord, for bringing us together to get to know and love one another, to learn of each other, and together to rejoice in our King. So, Lord, continue to bless us, we pray. Bless the food that we'll enjoy now. I encourage our hearts around the tables, and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Pertinent to some of those discussions that have been raised, ask them now. And also for our panel, if they have any last comments they want to make, perhaps correcting a false statement or something, since they've been corrected this week, to do that. And then after we've had enough time for that, Pastor John will kind of give some concluding remarks and close us in prayer. So um, what we'll do, you've got two mics there to pass around. So if you guys want to say anything right away, go ahead to clarify or make comments about the other guys. And then we'll just let you come on up and ask your questions. So away we go. Yeah, I would like to make a statement. Uh, actually, Steve's question, I, I, I mentioned one, one verse, and I just wanted to think, when we were asking the question about imputation and union with Christ, and I was saying we need to ground the two together, and so I just, we mentioned Philippians 3, but not, not having a righteousness of our own, but being found in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, famous passage, uh, in Christ, being counted the righteousness of God, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, I just wanted to flesh that a little bit more, that there are... Uh, Everywhere you go, the in Christ theme and, and righteousness are tied together. Reflect, reflecting back on um, uh, Chad's message, um, again, maybe just for the, the sake of a few, um, Chad, could you just elaborate a little bit on your um, idea of, uh, that you mentioned in there as, as things are being elucidated through Stephen's message on understanding how uh, to see Christ as... Torah fulfilled in the in the new covenant. I'm leaving that for next year or next time. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that that'll take a while. I think just very briefly. I think that that was one of the reasons why I started off with the yeah, it's 11. I mean, who comes up with 11 principles? Usually it's 12 or it's 7. If you're satanic, it's 6. <laughs> um, 11 principles that, of, of, you know, hermeneutical principles that were being used or that I could see there in the Acts 7 thing. And one of those things is, uh, you know, all of them I think are pertinent even to your question. One is seeing typological uh, uh, connections between the type and anti-type. Uh, understanding the Old Testament narrative is always prophetic, even in the narrative. So in Deuteronomy 33, when Moses is coming out of the da uh, down the mountain with the law under his hand, uh, there is being painted both by Moses, who is recording this and, and leaving it for our posterity, or, or if, you know, Deuteronomy 33 is part of a sermon. Um, and then just simply the picture, you know, God orchestrating things from the heavens to look like uh, the law is actually coming down from heaven uh, in, in Shekinah glory uh, and being ushered into, you know, the he heaven meets earth and it's being ushered into time and space 
via angels, that that paints a picture then that we see snapshots of that then through the rest of the Old Testament. And so we get to the New Testament and we expect to see anti-type. And so that's where I pick up on, you know, Luke 2. And then I think Stephen is um, in, in his sermon. So that's one of those hermeneutical principles, type, anti-type, seeing the Old Testament as prophetic, understanding Christ as the incarnation, not simply a type and anti-type, but as he, is, as he is the anti-type of the types and shadows, seeing him as the incarnational form of those shadows. So, you know, when, so by the time we get to the end of Stephen's sermon, you know, one of the things we keep in mind is one of the charges against Stephen was he was denigrating the law. And through the course of the sermon, then answers both charges. You are anti-temple, you are anti-law. He basically cops to both charges. In essence, uh, not necessarily being anti-temple, but he sees a new temple that has come down from heaven in Jesus Christ. And as far as the law is concerned, then, he sees Christ as the fulfillment of the law. And as he talks about the law being delivered by angels, then, uh, he's not just seeing Christ as the fulfillment of the law, but the incarnation of, of that law. So there's this type, anti-type, and then in the anti-type seeing the enfleshment, I think was a word that was used here uh, by somebody. Um, the, you know, he put flesh and blood on an abstract concept, you know, kind of like uh, Christ is the truth. So I think that's kind of what Stephen is picking up on, and it wasn't missed by, it was not missed by his listeners. It's very, you know, immediately the next verse is they're wanting to, uh, to, to stone him. So I don't. That's that's a long. It, it, there's more to it than that, but that's a very that's a short, short answer. I would like to, you know, if I had time, I'd elaborate more on that using those eleven hermeneutical principles. Will we be able to, in the future, uh, articulate more perfectly all these things we've been talking about for so long? And I'm sure we will continue talking about it much, you know, in the, in the future as well. But, you know, will we be able to do that corporately, individually? Uh, where do you think we're heading? Now, anybody can answer that, or maybe more than one. What brand of New Covenant theology are we? Was that from Gary? No. <laughs> and I, I thought, huh? Well, here come to find out, some guy had come to his church, and before he could join, he wanted to know, what brand of New Covenant are you? And so there's codification, New Covenant theology is one that I heard. There's another, there are three or four different terms he used. He said, can you help me with those? I said, no, I can't. I don't know anything <laughs> about it. Uh, but I thought, good grief. <laughs> We're splitting already. Uh, and the guy wasn't going to join the church unless he's the, the right kind of, of new covenant. And it seems to me if we're going to go anywhere at all, we've got to, we've got to start focusing on center and uh, yeah. work from there. And we're, we're partly guilty for that. And we, we did it primarily to define or try to give some people an idea of what differentiated us primarily from perhaps IDS or whatever. And, uh, and it was just a simple thing. And I think it was a useful thing for many people as well. Well, I don't mind. But I, I yeah. understand what you're saying. And I can, I can understand there can be very, all sure. kinds of distinctions within us. There are eschatologically and Absolutely. everything else, and that's fine. Um, 
But I know of, I know of in a, two or three instances where New Covenant folks have already divided over some interpretation of some secondary or tertiary issue. And I think we just got to be careful about it. I, I said that a few years ago on the panel here, and uh, I'm, I'm still seeing more of it. Where it's going to go, I don't know, but it seems to be heading toward more splits. The, the biggest encouragement that you have is the growth of those who believe in New Covenant theology. And the evidence of this is the books that are coming off of the press is very obviously which direction that's moving. It takes about 20 years to get from the book down to the level of the congregation. But one of the, one of the things I, I personally fear is the, the lack of people who have influence of really being definitive in what they're saying. And, and I, I think that I often say when you're preaching, you, you draw a picture of a horse. But then there's some people you have to write underneath it, this is a horse. But then there's some other people you have to draw a picture of a cow and say, this isn't a horse, this is a cow. And, and we have to do that theologically. And somebody asked uh, a guy in Spurgeon's day why his congregation understood so clearly the things that he preached and what was the secret. And he says, make sure you put big knots in your thread so they don't pull through. Wow. And, and that's the biggest fear I have, that I don't see anybody who, who is anybody worth, as far as a name is concerned, is really being definitive in the sense of even being willing to call themselves a New Covenant Theology. And I can understand why, because there's such a radical difference in so many different views of these and a bunch of characters and a bunch of crazy people. I had an email right before I left from somebody who said their sons had started to read my books and now doesn't believe it's necessary to go to church. He can play softball on Sunday afternoon instead of on Sunday morning instead of going to church. I, I hope that's not true, but anyhow, that's my biggest fear, but also my biggest rejoicing that there is a movement now, but it is still a movement. And it's a movement that's brought, born primarily out of the internet. And if it wouldn't be for the internet, you would have heard no New Covenant theology, you wouldn't have even heard about it. But that's the thing that at the moment is driving the New Covenant theology movement. Anybody over here? Well, I'll just say that I think one of the things that we need to do too is we need to get beyond just the, the, way, the way that some people define church history in terms of Puritans, we need to stop thinking in terms of the church, in terms of North American evangelicalism. And I think if, if New Covenant is going to have a strong presence in the actual church, as opposed to just the North American church, then we need to look at what we're teaching in the rest of the world. And we have the education and the resources and the money that a lot of other places do not have. And they have a lot of what we don't have, and that is people who are desperate to learn more about the Word of God. And so I think if New Covenant theology is going to have any future, then we need to take opportunities to go around the world and to teach people biblical theology, to teach people systematic theology, just to teach people at a basic level 
the way the scriptures develops and unfolds. And I think that we need to, in a sense, give of our time and resources self-sacrificially to get this message out, not just to the North American church, but to the church around the world. And as that sinks in, because I think it's especially a pivotal time where there are so many believers, but there is, at this point, there hasn't been any foundational teaching laid. So you don't have, in a lot of parts of the world, the seminary teaching this view and the seminary teaching this view and the seminary teaching that view. All you might have is a evangelical seminary or a Bible college. And so what's being taught there is going to be definitive and foundational and formative for the whole future generations of the church in those places. So this is, it's a massively pivotal opportunity around the world. We need to stop just thinking about here and start thinking about the globe. I, I, would, I would never, I, I, I said this before, I think it is rude to call him out publicly about that. Yeah, yeah. But, but Blake, um, it's not my question, but it's his question. What, what, what are you thinking about? Uh, I would love to. I love to travel and teach. So yeah, we're, we've already talked about emails and schedules. So. All right, so you heard it, heard, put it, make sure the recorder is running. Blake White is going to South Africa next year or paying for the whole team to go in his place. Thanks, Blake. John Jeffrey from Scranton. Blake, when you began uh, shortly into your, your message, you listed some works, and uh, among them were James Stewart, Louis Smees, Robert Latham. But the first one that you asked, has anyone got, got him or read him? I'm hard of hearing. I did not get the name. Who was that author that we didn't have? I don't. I think I was just asking. I don't think I named one. I think I was just asking: Is there any one-volume book that that anyone knows of? Yeah, you know, there was an author. Then, then oh, maybe been Richard Gaffin. That's probably what it was. Oh, it could have been Gaffin. Gaffin. Yeah, he's got okay. two little ones. They're kind of the same book. So get the newer one. And uh, yeah, he's helpful. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege of being in your presence and also in our fellowship with each other. We thank you that our affections are on the same person. Even though we may differ on some of our secondary things, our affections are on him who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for the gift that you've given to men, some of the young men, the spirit of godliness about them, for the learning that they have and the learning they impart to us. We ask your traveling mercies on each one of us back to our places where you've put us to serve you. May we magnify Jesus Christ in our own personal life and in our ministry to our people for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.